So we're going to um, do another sermon today on the, on the uh, champions of prayer. Uh, we had a beautiful sermon last week of, from Liz on uh, Hannah and the story of Hannah. And I know that um, if you go and listen to it on the um, web, you'll, you'll be blessed by that sermon. It was a beautiful sermon, um, very encouraging. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be talking about Nehemiah today. Uh, the whole book of Nehemiah is a, a beautiful book to read and to just to study and to meditate on. There are many, many uh, lessons that can be learned from that book not only from the life of Nehemiah, but from his, um, the obstruction of uh, the Senballat, Tobiah and Gershon, who tried to stop the work of God. Um, you'll see that um, typified in so many uh, things around you as, they, as, as the demonic forces try and stop you from doing and achieving what God wants you to, to achieve. Um, so there's lots and lots and lots in the book of Nehemiah that I can recommend that you should probably um, you know, study it, just read it uh, and uh, spend some time thinking about those things there. It's uh, w- well worth the read. Um, and I can't find it, so I'm not going to look at it, <laughs> but I'll just tell you about it. So um, what we have in the book of Nehemiah is an account. The two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they sort of go hand in hand together. If you can't find something while I'm talking to you, just go to your concordance at the back of your Bible and at the back of your Bible you'll find, you know, look it up there and you'll find it there. It'd be quite easy for you to find if you go to your concordance, if you're lost. So um, Nehemiah and Ezra are sort of like dual books. Ezra talks about uh, the, 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 the individuals coming back to Israel. Uh, back to Israel. So w- the situation was that Israel had sinned against God and God, because of his righteous judgment, had told them very clearly that if you sin against me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to disperse you amongst the nations. I'm going to to disperse you. I'm going to take Israel, I'm going to wipe it, and I'm going to disperse you amongst the nations. And so Israel sinned against God. They did the wrong thing by God. And God says, well, I promised that if you didn't do the right thing by me, I was going to disperse you. And he dispersed them amongst the different nations, amongst the uh, uh, Persians and all around the, the nations. They were spread. They were taken into captivity. God promised that he would actually punish them that way if they didn't do it and didn't obey him. After a period of time, he says, and after 70 years, he says, I'll bring you back. He says, if you learn to follow me, he says, and if you, if you recognize that this is the discipline, I'll bring you back. So when you get to Nehemiah, this is the third uh, wave of people coming back, if you like, to Israel after they'd been you know, exiled in other places. So Ezra talks about the coming back. But when, ne- when you get to Nehemiah, Nehemiah is actually still in Persia. In fact, he's in Iran, modern-day Iran, in Shush. I think you've got a Shush is a, is a place. Shush is Susa in the Bible. Susa is Shush. So that's in Iran. And that's where Nehemiah was living. In fact, he was uh, the guy who was running the whole place there. Um, he had a, um, if you like, a, a cupbearer, a waiter who looked after him, who tested all his things to make sure he wasn't good. And his name was Nehemiah. So he was right up there looking after the king. So Nehemiah hadn't gone back to Israel with all the others. So he was concerned about 
what was happening back in Israel. All the people who had been exiled and those who had survived the exile, they had been gone back now, they had gone back to Israel and they were living in Israel in a little place called Jerusalem and they were trying to get their lives back together again after God had punished them. So there was only a, a remnant that had gone back. A lot of people had been killed in the, in the, you know, in the exile. So there was just a few that had gone back to Israel now. And so a guy called Hanani comes to where um, Nehemiah is and he finds Nehemiah and Nehemiah is concerned and asks him, well, how is it back at Jerusalem with all those who have survived the exile? And Hanani tells him that it's not real good. He says that the people are in trouble and they're under great shame. He says, it's not good back there. He says, the walls are broken down and the gates are burned. So that's an interesting statement. The walls are broken down and the gates are burned. Well, we know that Jerusalem had walls about it. And the walls around Jerusalem were the thing that kept the invaders out. And while the walls are broken down on Jerusalem, that means that anybody can go in and go out. And it's like there's no protection. There's no safety. There's no security. And the gates being burned, well, that means that there's no way of actually, if you had walls, there's no way you can actually stop people from getting in. It was just a terrible thing. So what you had there is a situation where Nehemiah is told some very grave news about the people who have gone back, his brothers and sisters who'd gone back to their place. In this study, we're looking at what makes you a champion of prayer. What makes you a champion of prayer? Last week we looked at Hannah, and Hannah was a, a person who put God's needs and God's desires right in the center of her life. She would so wanted a child. She wanted a child more than anything. And for years and years she lived under this curse, if you like, about being barren and childless. And until God worked in her an attitude change, when she got an attitude change, it wasn't that she wanted the child for herself, she wanted the child for God and God wanted that change in her life. And then because God became the center of her life through the troubles that she had gone through, God gave her a child whom she gave back to God as the prophet Samuel. God's looking for people who have a heart after him. In the book of Nehemiah, we see exactly the same thing. We see that Nehemiah is working there, but God has changed Nehemiah's heart so that the things that concern Nehemiah are the things that concern God. And you would, you would think, well, why haven't you gone back? Why haven't you gone back to Israel with the others? Why didn't you go back to Jerusalem? Well, he figured he must stay where he was. He decided not to go back, but it didn't mean that his heart wasn't connected to them. And so when we read about Nehemiah, we read about this guy and they said, the people there are in great trouble and in disgrace. The idea of disgrace is the idea of nakedness, if you go back to the thing. They were exposed, they were naked. I think about the, 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 um, the words in, in Revelations, in chapter 3, I think it's verse 17, it says, that we're naked, they were naked and the poor are naked and blind because they didn't know God. He's talking about the church in the last days, is poor, naked and blind. And I think about that and I think, you know, that's like us. When we look at the church today and we think, you know, the church is in a bit of a mess, isn't it? 
So if you have a parallel, Nehemiah is told, hey, the people of Israel are in a bit of a mess. It's like us being told, hey, the church is in a bit of a mess. Just like that. And it's our, result, it's our response to that, which is really interesting. Because when we think, okay, the church is in a bit, a bit of a mess, we have a, a kind of detached sense about that. And I like Nehemiah's response because Nehemiah's response helps us to get an idea of what it is to have God's heart on this whole issue. He says, the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. And when you think about walls, you, the, you think about your salvation. You think about individuals' relationship with God. You think about individuals who walk in with God. That's your wall of protection is your relationship with God. It's not the things that you do on Sunday, you know, come to church on Sunday and do a prayer. That's not a wall of protection around you. That's going to be a ritual. That's not going to protect you. The thing that protects your life is your living relationship with Jesus. That's your protection. That's the wall about you. And so in the church, if people are losing their relationship with God and just doing religious things, coming to church doing religious things, there's no protection there. The walls are broken down. If people are not living in a vital relationship with Jesus, their wall is broken down. And if you think about the gates, you think, well, the gates how you get in behind a wall. So it's got to be talking about the way you get saved, the way you come into that vital relationship with Jesus. And, and Jesus clearly says, you know, there's a, a number of things that you do to come into that vital relationship. One of the things that you do, you have to repent. You have to leave your life of sin and have to turn to God and walk in a new path. That's the way you get in there. You can't come into a vital relationship with God without repenting. You have to have faith toward God. You have to have, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you can't come into a vital relationship without expressing faith. So it's not just coming to church and sitting down and doing the rituals and just standing up and just sort of saying, well, I hope everything's okay and not expressing any faith in your life. Your walls are broken down and your gates are burned if that's the case. So there's some very clear parallels with what was happening to Israel and what's happening into the church today. Very clear parallels. And Nehemiah shows us our heart's response to that dilemma. And I like what he does. And I think we can learn something from him today. The words in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 17 tell us, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's what he's talking about, the end time church. That's it. It's, the walls have been broken down. They're in trouble and a great disgrace. So we have some choices here, I suppose. And this is where I think it links in with the picture that we saw last week with Eli. You know, Eli standing there and he looks at this woman whose lips are moving because her heart is crying out to God because she's getting in touch with God and letting God know that she's making a, a covenant agreement with God that she'll give the child that God gives her back to God. You know, He looks from a distance and he makes this ugly judgment of her that she's drunk. Got it right wrong. You know, when we see that there's a problem either in the church or in the church at large. When we see a problem, we've got a number of choices that we can make. And the first choice is we can be arrogant, have arrogant criticism. You know, and this is the, this is the feeling that you get with an arrogant criticism. You stand haughty. You look down your nose and say, I'm glad I'm not like them. Well, my life is so righteous and they are not. And they're out of it because of all their sin. And then you begin to judge them because of their sin. And in that judgment, bring condemnation onto their lives. 
and onto your own life because that's an arrogant way. Oh, you don't do anything about fixing it up. You don't do anything about fixing up the problem that's in front of you. You don't, you're not part of the solution in any way. You're just an arrogant judge of it. That's one of the choices that we have. When we see something that's going wrong, you sit back, oh, yeah, yeah, look at that, and point the finger. That's one of the responses that we can have. That's like, Eli, Eli, look, you're drunk in church. Oh, completely out of whack with it. Makes an arrogant criticism. Another one is detached mediocrity. Oh, well, look at that church over there. They're just doing that, 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 that. You know, and then we detach. We're going to just keep away from that. That's just, oh. And then we detach ourselves and we just become hard. If you want to see detached mediocrity, go and talk to a nurse who works in emergency. And a nurse who works in emergency has a certain amount of detached mediocrity. So if somebody comes in, a little child comes in and they've fallen over and they've, they've, they've got little stones in, the, in, in their knees because it's all embedded in their knees. Oh, we've got to clean that now. And the child says, oh, what are you going to do? Well, I've got a, just a little brush here and we're going to scrub that wound there with the brush and get the little stones out of the cut. And of course, you know, the nurse doesn't really care about what, just got to get the stones out, don't you? Completely detached about the child screaming, just hold her down while I do this. <laughs> Detached. A sense of mediocrity. I don't care, you know, it doesn't matter. Now that, that is a coping mechanism by which nurses survive because if you think about it, um, I mean, I, this, <laughs> this week I had a, um, a, a lovely situation where I, where I discovered a, a thing called kidney stones. <laughs> And after my writhing and yelling and screaming and Jenny calling the ambulance and them come running out, you know, and then it all settled down before they got there. <laughs> I was sort of standing in the room, I better lay on the bed, hey Jade, because, you know, they've come to see me, so I better get down on the bed again. <laughs> so, I mean, but then the, the guy is sort, of, sort of detached. Like I'm thinking, you know, I could have been dying. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like kidney stones, you know. Didn't really care, not real serious, you know. He sort of sense, he, he, well, I mean, it's just, you know, come on, you know, you know poke me some more. Make, make sure it's not going to come back and hurt me again. <laughs> uh, this, this is the way they cope. They just get on with life, you know. We can't, we can't be feeling your pain. We've got to just get on and help you, you know. And they're helping it. But detached mediocrity is like, okay, we can see the problem. We can see the problem in the church. We can see the problem in the world. And you know what? I'm just glad it's not with me. I'm just going to coast on myself. When we talk about some of the statistics that are out there today, we could say, like, divorce produces statistics like 50,000 young people under the age of 18 every year in Australia will go through a, a marital, marital divorce. The legacy of that marital divorce is going to produce a situation whereby only, point, only 9% or less than, less than 10% will find a lasting relationship in their lives that's the statistics so if you've gone through a divorce situation your kids are prone to have failing marriages as well Nine, 90 percent prone to have failing marriages because they have no role, role model for what a, a and you say oh that's a horrible statistic yeah well we can detach ourselves from it and, and, and have certain level, level of mediocrity about that we could just say oh, that's gee that's hard isn't it and just at least our, our marriages together or oh, we've got Jesus now, it doesn't matter. 
But we're talking about a society with 50,000 kids every year going through this in a society. And you just, this is our society in which we're living. Project that forward and ask yourself this question. What is our society going to look like in 10 years' time? Now, that may not affect us in the church. Those who are divorced in the church may have got their hearts and lives together and God's pulled it all back together and we're part of the 10% who's, who, who can keep it together. But what about that out there? What about the brokenness? What about the destituteness out there? What about it? See, that's where we show the, de- the detached mediocrity. It's like we don't even attach ourselves to the problem out there and yet we're the ones with the light to actually give them some guidance in the problem. Okay, so, and then there's this identified merciful compassion. We try to make a difference. And that's the place that Nehemiah takes us to, this place of identified compassion where he tries to make a difference. So let's have a look at it. We had a, 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 live, a show of Eli's life last week, and this verse became important. And I heard this verse even today mentioned, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. See, this is this merciful attitude, identifying with a need and having a merciful attitude. It's again mentioned in in Matthew chapter 9, 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You know, you can do your religious thing, but God wants you to equate with people's problems with a merciful attitude. For I have not called the righteous, but sinners. And God is saying, look, my focus is on the broken people around you. I want you to be merciful with brokenness. I want you to be caught with it. Focus on the brokenness and try and do something about it. And then he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, if you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And so we become quite arrogant in our condemnation of people. And God is saying, hey, 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 wait a minute. You're all broken. Every one of you is busted. Who do you think you are standing there with an arrogance? He says, don't condemn broken people. Ask yourself the question, how can you help broken people? How can you inspire broken people to come to Jesus? How can you adopt an attitude of mercy? So we're going to look at Nehemiah's response because it gives us an example of that champion heart. And we're going to have a look at what he says. The first thing he said, if you go through that thing and you'll read it, it says, he sat down. Nehemiah heard what the problem was. And then he said, I sat down. Now, now I want to just slow this process down. To sit down in our society means you've got to stop what you're doing. And sometimes we get so busy with what we're doing, we've got no time to stop. We hear of bad things that are happening around us. We see bad things happening around us. We turn on the telly and we see it lived out in front of us like a horrible sense of here it comes, this horrible world we're living. And yet we do not stop and sit down. We do not take some time to stop and to rest a while and contemplate the thing that we have heard and the thing that we have seen. It's essential, I think, to get to this place of mercy and compassion that you stop what you're doing. 
Well, I, you know, look, Mark, I, I, I've got a business to run. Yeah, I know. Look, I've got studies I've got to do. Yes, I know. Look, I have a wife I have to go and, and, and... I know. I have a field I have to go and plow. I know. Everybody's got something that they should and need to be doing. But listen, if you want to have mercy and if you want to have compassion, you want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, you've got to stop once you hear or see the problem and stop and ask God to help you to do something about it. You will not do anything about the problems that are around you if you do not stop and look at them. And one of the things that you find that people do in this sort of deviant behavior happening on a street, they tend to see it in the corner, of, you've seen this, they see it in the corner of their eye and they just keep on walking. you seen that? And you ask, well, why did you do that? Why didn't you stop? Well, I just didn't want to get involved. I remember as a young man, I think I told you the story before, I went up to a church, I think it was a CLC church in, in Sydney, uh, sorry, in, in, in the city. And I was a young man. You weren't with me then, were you? I was a young man. And I'd gone to this church. And then when I got to this church, before I got to the church, I had to walk across the street. And there and laying in the middle of the street was a drunk man who was laying there. Drunk, spewed, urinated in the middle of the street. What would you do? Well, well, generally speaking, people just walk by. You don't stop, do you? But, I I mean, I, I, I don't think I was a strong Christian but I had that sense of humanity this bloke he could get hit if he's laying in the middle of the road so I had to get down and I had to pick him up off the reed you know so I'm picking him up he could hardly stand up because he was so drunk he's vomited all over himself he's urinated all through his pants and so he stunk he completely stunk and he wouldn't couldn't stand up by himself so I had to put my arm underneath him and pick him up and hold him close to myself so I could take him to the side of the road said to him, where do you live, mate? Where do you live? He says, oh, no, no, no. So, in, so we went in that general direction. When we got there, where, where do you no, no, no. So we went over there and we found his little hole, his little little room that he lived in that was stunk like urine and, and it, was, it was just horrible. And I just put him down there and this lady who was about 60 years old, 70, 80 years old maybe, with big red lips all painted across her face like that and the hair all matted and she came and said, thanks for looking after him, mate, you know. And I thought, well, that's not nice, you know. And then I thought I would proceed to church. I stopped. I got involved, did my thing, you know. Thought I would receive to church. I went to church. What's that stink? Oh! It was all over me. His smell was all over me. It was in my hands. I, I washed my hand. I washed my hand. I, I had put my hand up under his arm and everything that was in his, in his bodily fluids had soaked into my hand and that was the, the, the smell was on my fingers. His, his urine and his, his vomit was on my clothes. See, stop. There's always a cost when you stop. There's always a cost when you stop. That's why we don't stop. Hey, that's why we keep on going. Because we learned indifference. We've learned mediocrity. We've learned this place of, okay, okay, we don't want to stop there because if we stop, there's a cost involved in the stopping. That's what I like about Nehemiah. 
He could have said, oh, yeah, you know, they'll get it together when they, oh, Israel, oh, those crazy people back in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll have to work it out, won't they? Oh, you've just dismissed it. They'll have to work it out, won't they? Yeah, probably Hannah and I, they'll have to work it out. They'll have to get their, their act together if they want to survive down there. Glad to hear. Uh, good to see you again. I have been, been around for a while. You know, we're having a great time. Look at, look at what I'm doing here in the palace, you know. See, I'm really important in the palace now. No, no this man did not do that. He actually stopped his serving the king. He stopped his stuff and he sat down. He said, I want to think about this problem a little while. And so he stopped. He wanted to find out, what does God think about this? What does God feel about this? So we see something. Do you ask the question, what does God think about this? How does God feel about that? What would God want me to think about this? What would God want me to feel about this? My thoughts, it says in Isaiah 55, are not your thoughts, says the Lord. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And my ways are higher than your ways. He says, let the wicked man forsake his thoughts and the evil man his ways. He says, you know, we have to stop if we want to be full of God. If we want to have God in us, we have to stop and say, well, God, now show me what you think about this and what you feel about this now. And that takes some time to do that. So if you're busy with your program, you're busy with your if you're busy with your job, if you're busy with your kids, if you're busy with your routine and it's just busy, busy, busy and you never get time to stop, don't bother to listen anymore because you won't have this problem. You won't find out what God is really thinking about this. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we're actually told by Paul, he says, when you've been raised with... He says, stop, think of things above, not of things below. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's actually telling us, you know, you need to stop and change the way you think and change the way you feel. So that's the first thing that we can learn from Nehemiah. Then it tells us that he wept and he mourned. Well, so he stopped, he sat down. He thought about it. What does it mean that these people are in trouble? That these people are, you know, ashamed where they are, in disgrace. And he got so upset about it. The Bible says he wept and mourned for many days. Now, I could sit there and I could tell you about chlamydia. What's chlamydia? It's a sexually transmitted disease. Hmm? It's an STD, like gonorrhea, syphilis. Hmm. So why? Why would you want to talk about something like that in church on Sunday? Well, let's, let's, let's just tell you something that I read in the newspaper. 46,000 children between the ages of 12 and 14 in Australia went and got themselves tested for chlamydia. 46,000 this year. 46,000 
this year went and got, between 12 and 14 years old. Um, how old are you, Emma? You're 19. Boy, you, got, you do that well, love. Don't ever, ever, that's great. All right, Lily, how old are you? 12, stand up for me, darling. How old are you? 12, stand up for me, darling. These two 12-year-old girls. This is the world in which they live. 46,000 young people your age went to the doctor and got themselves tested to see whether they had a sexually transmitted disease. What does that mean, folks? It means that they have been sexually active. You can sit down up. We know that you haven't been. We can detach ourselves from that and just walk on now. Now stop now. Sit down and think about that. Let that soak into you now. We don't need to throw stones at these kids. We don't need to say, oh, shocking kids. Oh, this world is such a terrible place. Oh, you're all going to hell. Oh, terrible. Listen, stop that. Think about this. What does God feel about that? He's brokenhearted. Our society has missed the point. Our teenage Girls and boys are doing things that adults should do after marriage. And here they are, 12 to 14, 46,000 this year went to front up to get a test. Of those, what was 6,000 had the disease. What can I do about that? Well, my. You're making me feel guilty now. What should I do about that? Well, you should ask yourself the question. If it was my child, what would I feel about that? If it was my baby, what would I feel about that? What would I do about that? If it was, what, what can we do to help my neighbor who has children that age? Is there a solution to the problem? Well, God, what do you think about that problem? Well, the, Maybe one thing, educate. We've got to start praying. We've got to start it. Somebody's got to do some talking. We can't just say, oh, I'm glad it's not me. <laughs> you just stay close, kids. Okay, stay in the little huddle. This is our little holy huddle. This is the holy huddle that's going to take us to Jesus when Jesus comes back. We just keep away from those bad and wicked people out there. Oh, God. God is looking for men and women who will stop a while. And let the reality of stats like that soak into you so that you can be part of a solution, not part of the problem. They don't need any more judgment. They have enough judgment coming at them. What they need is someone to help them, someone to shine a light for them. Our youth group is a beautiful place where a positive community of young people can have an effect can i support my youth group better can i help my young people better uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we sit down and say oh the young people don't do it right these days what can i do to help my young group what can i get how, how can i help them stand up and be the light do i do i even pray for them or do i just criticize them see the 
You notice the difference. He wept and he mourned for days. Then it said, in James it says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is part of what it is to be letting God take control of your life. Come near to God and he will come near to you. We don't feel what God is feeling because we never come near to God enough to feel it. You know, it's like, I mean, I, I have a wife who, who is going through menopause. You know what that means? It, it means that sometimes she gets very, very hot. She has a, oh, that's okay, darling. We know that. This is a normal thing that we all, uh, you know, stop and feel about. So at night time, stand up, darling. It's, it's okay. Uh, you know, it's usually, it's usually meant to shame you. That's all. I do. I do this to just to bring shame upon our lives. Now, now, she's pretty cool. She's lovely, isn't she? She's a pretty cool girl. So, but with menopause, one of the things that you have with the menopause is this thing called a hot flush. You know the hot flush? Yeah, yeah, yeah some of you know. And that means that everything inside of her body races at a temperature about 1,000 degrees. And so any time that I get near to her, I get to feel the heat. And so I get a, a quick push onto the other, other direction. Now, because we are connected and we love one another, at night time I want to give her a cuddle. It, what? I get the heat. <laughs> Let me sit down, she says. If we were sleeping in different beds, and I'm not having a go at anybody who sleeps in different beds, I would never get to feel that. But if I come near to her, I enter into that whole process with her. So it's not just my wife who is going through menopause, dear soul. I am going through menopause as well. It's not just my wife who's suffering with hot flushes. I suffer with the hot flushes as well. Now listen, that's because I am joining with her. I come near to her. And when I come near to her, I enter into what is going on with her. And when you come near to God, when you commit yourself to God and submit yourself to God and you come near to God, you are going to enter into what's going on with God. And His heat is going to come rub off on you. And you're going to feel the heat and the passion of God if you come near to God. If you want to stay detached from God because it's, there's too much cost involved by getting near to God, you'll live your life kind of easy through life. You won't feel the heat. But we're told here to come near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you so that both of you will have the sense of closeness. You've stopped now and you've started to weep and you've drawn near to God. That is what he says. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart. You, you won't get near to God without, with sin in your life. So you have to clean the act up. That's the first thing you have to do. Stop fooling around. And then he says, read it with me. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Oh, wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, our society says have fun and have excitement and have a good and happy time. But you mean if I get close to God 
it's going to change my disposition about life somewhat you're going to get the feel what god feels about 46,000 kids stuffing their lives up you're just going to get to feel that and and that feeling ought not to produce a new judgment i've seen lots of people who self-righteously feel the pain of the sin and it results in judgment and judgment making not mercy but judgment making that doesn't help shouldn't do that well we know ought not not we know should ought not we already know that but what are you doing to help that See, the process of getting a heart and being a champion of prayer is letting God get close enough to you so that it changes your heart and you're filled with compassion so that you see the problem and it grieves you as though it was happening to your own flesh and blood. You wouldn't stand there with your own flesh and blood and say, well, let me kick you while you're down. You'd be saying, oh, look, oh, you know, I'm going to pray earnestly. I'm going to seek God. And, you know, you could, it'd just be hard to have fun, wouldn't it? Because it, it'd be hard to have fun knowing that while you, are f- while you are having fun, kids are dying. That would be hard. And that's what this is. That's what Nehemiah shows. He stopped. He wept and he mourned. He showed us. That real suffering, when you enter into real suffering, you're done with sin. This is what Peter says. Pain tends to focus us. I, I got that when I got those kidney stones. It just, man, you're focused. I mean, you want to go and kick a ball? No, I just want to survive. I'm just getting focused now. This is horribly painful. Well, you know, you know what it's like to have a baby. Well, I don't. <laughs> that would probably be a whole lot worse. The kidney stone was the size of a match head. A baby's the size of a watermelon. I don't have any comprehension of what you're going through. No, I don't identify with having a baby. But yeah, it's painful. And pain focuses you. You know what? We don't want to have pain. We want to have fun and hedonistic pleasure in the society. So we stop ourselves and separate ourselves from having a real attachment to pain or the things that are going wrong in society because if we have the pain, it tends to focus our minds and focus our lives. I mean, if you... He says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1, says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in, his, in the body is done with sin. Okay, if you... And picture here is you, you had to get beaten up for Jesus and it cost you a lot. You're done with sin. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to fool around with sin anymore. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly days for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So the person who's really suffered in their sin because of their sin, say they were a drug addict or something like that, and they, they, went, they lost their, their, their loved ones, they lost their, their marriages or they lost their whole, and they, were, they, were, they lost their good health, and then Jesus saved them. You know what? Would you like a little bit of something to snort? I don't think so. We, we don't do that anymore. That was the thing that killed us. We don't 
snort stuff like that. And we, we actually help those who snort to try and get them out of that, you know. You're done with sin because of the suffering. First Peter says in chapter 4 verse 7, it says, the, the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober with a sober mind that you may be able to pray. You know, this suffering, entering into the suffering, you stop, you start saying, Jesus, reveal to me what you think about this and what you feel about this. Reveal to me. I want to see your heart with regard to these things that I'm facing today. And then Nehemiah did for a number of days seeking God. Show me your heart. Let me feel what you feel about this thing. And he got progressively sad. Worse and worse the more he sought God. Because the problem is pretty horrible. So he stopped eating. He fasted. Fasted. And we often think, oh, fast is just stop eating food. God has a different view of fasting than just stopping. Fasting is whatever you're doing that you shouldn't really or don't need to be doing, that you can just stop that. That could be a fast. So if you're watching TV and that's taking all your time and you have to stop that to actually come near to God and ask God how you're feeling, that's probably a fast. That's your fast yourself TV. Cut it off. Turn it off. There, it's turned off now. I'm fasting TV. You know, you could fast your pillow, couldn't you? You could sleep on the floor, on bed, like Claudia did. You slept on the floor, didn't you? Fasted your mattress. Yeah, 40, last year, 40, 40, 40 hours? I thought 40 days and 40 nights. No, not quite. 40 hours. I'm not going to sleep on I'm going to sleep on the, on the bed, bare boards just so I can relate to, identify with those who have no bed. I'm going to stop eating to relate to, identify with those who have no food. The fast is the identification. The fast is when you begin to identify. And God says, you know what? I have all kinds of fasts. One of the fasts he talks about is here in Isaiah 58, verse 6 to 9. He says, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen, says God, to loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke and to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? He said, that's a fast. Get out there and do something to bring a solution to the problem that you're facing. Get out there, stop for a while, ask what God thinks about it and say, look, I'm going to stop everything else that I'm doing in life and I'm going to focus myself on trying to help, trying to be part of the solution. Oh, I'm going to have a good business by the time I get to 30. And you see, you know, you've got a great business and you're 30 years old, you've got money coming out your ears and you miss the opportunity to help those who are walking with you. What's the point of that? There's no point in that. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and to not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call on the Lord and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, I'm here. That's a fast. You don't say, oh, I'm not going to eat any food. I'm going to eat that. I'm not going to do this. And I'm fasting. Quite clearly, we're told not to practice our righteousness before men in terms of fasting. 
Jesus says, when you fast, he says, don't put on a sad face and walk around and say, oh, I'm fasting. <laughs> Aren't you impressed with my righteousness? Aren't you impressed with the way that I am so, I haven't, I haven't eaten for five days now. See how skinny I am? I'm fasting. And everybody says, oh, I wish I could be like Mark because he fasts for five days. He's not being eating. I don't know how he goes. Oh, that man is such a man of God. I'm serious. You missed the point. The point is, when you fast, Jesus says, put oil on your face and look happy so no one knows you're fasting. The fast has not to do with your righteous lifestyle to impress people around you about your religiosity. The fast has to do with your identification with the problem. Are you really facing the problem? Are you looking at the problem? Are you engaged with the problem? Have you decided to make the problem the center and Jesus, help me deal with the problem? Are you fasting everything else so that you can do that? You're committing yourself to that. That's what he did. He fasted. Notice there it says in Joel in 1.14 says, call a holy fast. A holy fast, he said. And the word holy means set aside, separation. So the fast was something that you separated yourself from everything else. You separated yourself to do that. And then he prayed. So what had he done? He stopped. He got engaged with God's feelings and thoughts. He began to weep and mourn. And he said, I'm just going to stop what I'm doing now and I'm going to focus on, make that the thing that I'm going to focus on. That's what he did. And then he began to pray. He began to pray. But what did he pray? These are the things he prayed. And this is in a nutshell. He said, God, you are awesome. You know, in the midst of all of this stuff, he could see that God wasn't the one that was at fault here. And we look at the problem and say, well, if God is so big, why doesn't he do something about the problem? You know, these are God's chosen people. They've gone back to, the, they've gone back to Israel, gone back to Jerusalem. To, and why isn't God looking after them? It's God's problem. Yeah, his chosen people, he said he'd send them back. Why isn't he looking after them when they go back? No, no. Nehemiah is not involved in blaming God for the problems that are existing in the world today. They're not God's problems. They're God's opportunities for us. And what Nehemiah does is he looks at God and says, you are just awesome. You always were awesome. You always are awesome. You are great, God. You are fantastic, God. There's nothing wrong with God. His prayer shines light back to God and says, you are perfect in everything that you say and do. You said that if we disobeyed you, you would punish us. You did exactly what you said you would do. You said that if we followed you, you would send us back. You did exactly what you said you'd do. You're faithful. You're, you're holy. You're beautiful. Everything about you is right. Nothing wrong with God. He acknowledged that in his prayer. You go read that prayer. It's very clear. God has unfailing love. 
God is not sitting there going and saying, okay, all right, I haven't finished grinding you to a powder yet. You wait until I've finished with it. You will, you will wish that you were dead. No, no, no. God is not like that. He's got unfailing love. He's punished them because he's faithful to his word. And now the punishment has been exercised. He's brought them back into their promised land. Yes, there are few and they are broken down and they're in trouble. But his unfailing love is what's inside of Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah has got close to the situation now and he's feeling the unfailing love of God. God is faithful. So if God sees 46,000 kids doing the wrong thing, does God sit down and says, I'm just, oh, I'm itching to burn you in hell. It's not God's desire that any should perish. So that's not his heart. His heart is to do something about that. It's unfailing love. You've been brought to this time for such a time as this. You are in space on this earth because God determined that at this time in human history, you would breathe. And in this time in human history, you can either step up to the mark and say, Jesus, what would you have me do? Or you can play a silly game about building up your empire, which you're going to actually leave because you're going to die one day. Ask yourself the question, Jesus, what, how do you want to pour out your unfailing love through me? God's love is unfailing. What Nehemiah did then is he confessed. Now, you would have thought that Nehemiah would have said, you know, they need to confess their sins. They need to look at their lives and sort their lives out because of the stuff that they are doing. Because if they were living in the right place, they'd have their walls up and they'd have themselves together. I'm sitting here. I'm looking at the king. I can't do anything about it, but they need to deal with their sin and deal with it now. That's what you'd think. But you know what? When you read that prayer, he doesn't do that. He gets down on his face and says, I ask you to forgive me for all of my parents' sins that they have committed against your name. We have violated your laws. He says, and not only that, I'm asking you to forgive me for all of my sins that I have committed against your name. So he repents, wholeheartedly repents before God for everything that his parents did. He didn't do that. And everything that he's done. He's saying, I'm not separating myself from these people and saying I'm somehow different to these people. I'm not saying that those people are in trouble because they're facing. He says, they and me, we're one. And in his intercession, he stood up and he said, you know what? I am a sinner. They are a sinner. We repent before you, Father. He identified with the problem and didn't set himself apart from it. It's an amazing thing. You read that. It's very, very clear. And says, God, you need to rescue us by your power. Lord, rescue us. We can't do without you. Rescue us. If you go through the prayer, you'll see that he's calling God to rescue. And then he says, this is the last part of the first chapter. He says, in essence, grant me success so that I can make a difference. He says, grant me success as I stand before this man. And he's talking about the king. After his time with God, after his time with prayer, 
after his time of sitting down, he's come to this place. You know what? I give myself to be part of the solution. I dedicate my life to make a difference. And I'm going to take a risk now. Now, this is the same place that Esther lived. In the same sort of circumstances, Esther took a risk. She had to stand before the king and she said, excuse me, king. And she had to go and approach the king and ask the king when she had no privilege to do that, which meant, could have meant her death sentence. We have the same situation here. We have a cupbearer to the king. We have the king who has the power to kill him if he steps out of line. Here he is mourning, wailing and weeping. If you go to the next chapter, the king walks in and says, what's up with you, Nehemiah? Why are you so glum? You know, you, uh, you, that's dangerous stuff. I want to see happy faces around. Take him away and take his head off his shoulder. I want happy faces. Be happy. I don't care what you've gone through in life. I'm not worried about what's happening in your family. When you come before me, I want to see you smile. I don't want to have to face. I've got enough problems on my own than having to try and deal with all your problems, okay? That could have been his response. And yet Nehemiah is so caught with the problem, so caught with the heart of God, so caught with what's happening, so caught with it, he's standing before the king and the king says, something up with you, what's wrong with you? But he's asked God, give me favor before the king, just like Esther did, ask God for favor. And it's that favor that he got that enabled him to make a difference with regard to the walls that were broken down and the gates that were burned. So what God is calling us to is something a little bit different. If Nehemiah shows us what it is to be full of the heart of God, he shows us the process of getting full of the heart of God. And that process just doesn't come by a divine shaft of life that comes through the, the clouds and zing, here it is, and dong, you got it. It comes from stopping what you're doing because the stuff that you're doing is usually a distraction to it. It comes from stopping what you're doing, sitting down a while and asking yourself the question, you know, God, I want to feel what you feel about that. I want to think your thoughts about that. And then as they come to you, as God begins to pour out and show you what he thinks and what he feels, don't be surprised if your heart then begins to grieve. Because we've got a lovely God who loves us so much and hates sin so much, he grieves over it. Grieves over it. So when you're working on Monday with Kath and you're going to work on the street van with Kath and these people coming to you and you're thinking, what is going to... You should go home with a heart that's so heavy and say, God, unless you break in, into the darkness of these people's life, how will they ever find it? And you would get on your knees and say, you'd pray before you go there and say, God, Jesus, open the doors of communication so that when we get there, the right words would be on our lips. We'd maybe have a word of knowledge or something that would shine a light into man's brokenness. And you'd get there and say, God, this is more important than my work. I'm, gonna just, I'm just going to spend time. I'm just going to wait. I don't want to watch TV. I just want to get right. Lord, give me something so that i can give them something that's nehemiah's heart king says what can i do he says give me give me give me give me some timber give me some an order so i can get there give me 
cattle and whatever. He had, he had a whole list of things ready for the king. Why? He got close to the heart of God. He got full of the heart of God. He got associated with the heart of God in terms of pain. He fasted everything else. He dealt with his sin and set himself into a situation where he was ready to be used by God. Champion of prayer. That's the process. Let's stand, shall we? Just bow your heads and I'm not going to call you to the front to respond to this because I think that's completely inappropriate because this is not a thing that you have to respond to now. This is a thing you have to respond to during the week. This has to become part of your life, a separating, if you like, of your life for the divine purposes of God. If God's been challenging your heart and you think, okay, my life has been really, really busy and that busyness is distracting me and I think I need to stop some, I want you to indicate to God with your raised hand and say, Lord Jesus, I, I, look, yeah, this has been just too busy and I need to stop. I need to take some time out. I'm wasting way too much time doing nothing. Okay? If you, if you find in your heart a sense of, callousness so you're able to listen to the news you're able to hear the horrendous things that are happening around the world and it doesn't seem to stir within you any emotional response there seems to be a hardness inside of your heart like okay but that's not related to me and you find a distance in your heart from reality what's going on put your hand up to you join those who put their hands up if there's a sense of hardness in your heart that's there If you know that God's been speaking to you about fasting something, he's been having his finger on something and he's, he's saying, you need to stop doing that. Kids, draw back from that. Draw back from that and focus on me. And he, you put your hand up as well because he wants to speak to you today. He wants to help you. Lord, I ask that you just touch each person who's indicated to you today that there has been a register from the heart of God with them, Father. Lord, we want to be real. We want to be helpful. We want to be loving and merciful. And Lord, this world is in such a state, such a horrible state. Lord, there are millions and millions and millions of people heading for a godless eternity. Help us, Lord Jesus, to identify with that. And become part of the solution, I pray. Help us to pray accordingly, we ask, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.